Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and delighted to be here with my co-host as always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore and a local author. Who have we been reading for the month of February? We've been reading Robert Justice from Denver and his book, They Can't Take Your Name. It's just a, it's a really great book. It's into a lot of issues that we can talk about. Um, wrongful convictions, a kind of race in Denver. There's all sorts of things to talk about in this book. I really enjoyed it. Well, we are delighted to have Robert join us. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Well, Denver-based, of course, it is, but more specifically, Five Points. And, of course, for people who maybe aren't familiar with the very rich history of Five Points in Denver, tell us about Five Points and why you wanted to set it here. Five Points is traditionally the the heart of Denver's black community. It's where uh, Denver's black community would find barbershops and beauty shops and churches and bars. And it was a place uh, of safety and solace, but also a place to grow your family. And yes, there are surrounding communities such as Park Hill and the like, but Five Points was the hub. So is it still like that or is it has, has it been seen some gentrification where that's falling up you know where it's not quite that or what's the situation now at five points yes this book is almost a a tribute to what five points was it's set in the 90s right now there's a whole lot of gentrification that's taking place and a lot of growth and things like that um and so to say it's the heart of the black community today wouldn't be quite accurate but this is trying to capture what it was and make sure we don't forget so in the 90s you you where you said it you know, you still had this very much like the main character who Eli, who we'll get back to, was trying to revive this nightclub, really. That was a was a great uh, nightclub back in the jazz age. And, you know, tell us about the, the music. Well, you know, it, you talked about, you know, beauty salons and churches, but also culturally. Right. Wasn't Five Points really uh, a major place culturally for, for the whole city of Denver, but really for these artists in the jazz age and, and through into the 60s, really, I would think. Yeah, Five Points, known as the Harlem of the West. And the jazz club that I write about, I call it the Raz in the book, but it's based upon the Rossonian, which was this historic jazz club where anybody who was anybody, when they would come through town um, and play oftentimes in downtown Denver for white audiences, they then would come to Five Points. Uh, black artists would come to Five Points, one, to have a place to sleep uh, in the upper levels of the Rossonian, which was known as the Baxter Hotel. But then on the lower level, you had this this nightclub, this jazz club, and they oftentimes would play there as well, just um, out of gratitude for having a place to sleep and a place to, to just be themselves. Mm-hmm. Is that is that club, that building still standing or did that get knocked down a long time ago? No, it, it is. It's been boarded up for, for years and right now is being renovated and reopened. Wow. Yeah. And well, as a club or do you know? I, I, I think it is going to be a club. I haven't seen the, the final plans it's yet. It's like your There's fiction some, could yeah. come true. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's my hopes. I'm actually going to be doing an event there uh, in a couple of weeks right across the street from the Rossonian at a at a coffee shop called Coffee at the Points. And so that'll be fun to to be right there at Five Points where, where the book takes place. Mm-hmm. And there are still some of those old businesses there. I mean, of course, the Welton Street Cafe is still there. I got to have lunch there a couple of weeks ago. And I, I know they're trying to fundraise to, to help with their situation because it's precarious for these businesses that have been in families that have been there for a long time in the face of gentrification and in the face of What's happening with housing, which, of course, is so much tied to gentrification, the cost of just being in Denver. 
Yes, and I mean, Five Points is a, a very mixed community right now, uh, economically, socially, everything you can think of, very mixed. And you've got this new wave because of gentrification happening. But then you have those who have been in that community for 30, 40, 50 years holding on. Um, but then at the same time, what do you do when the house that you lived in is now tripled, quadrupled, who knows what it's in price? You can't um, fault anybody for considering, well, I could sell right now and this is like retirement, you know, and that sort of thing. So there's there's a lot of hard choices being made, but it's a beautiful community. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just get priced out on the property tax. You know, exactly. if, you're, exactly. if you're in a later in your life and you're living on Social Security or something and that property tax has quadrupled, you know, that, that makes it almost impossible yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, at the heart of the book, which takes you know place in five points for the most part, um, is this wrongful convic conviction. Your character, Langston, he has been convicted of uh, a, a famous crime in Denver history that you kind of uh, transformed a little bit. So tell us what Langston was convicted of. And we know right off, you know, there's no suspense. You tell us immediately that it's a wrongful conviction. He was wrongly convicted of this. But what was the crime and what's the historical basis of it? Yes, you know, most, most crime novels are about who did it. And when you have a wrongful conviction, it's about who didn't do it. And yeah, chapter one, we have Langston Brown, who has been wrongfully convicted of the Mother's Day Massacre, which is loosely based upon a crime that happened in Denver known as the Father's Day Massacre, where there were these four security guards um, who were shot and lost their lives as a, a man made his way through and stole about a half a million dollars. And it's one of Denver's unsolved crimes. There was a, a very public trial um, where a um, former police officer was found not guilty, but to this day, no one has been held accountable for that crime. And so I always thought growing up in this city, um, because the way the trial went and how the ex-police officer was found not guilty, it always struck me. I thought, man, if a black person was um, going through the same thing. I just couldn't see that he would have been found not guilty. And so in my retelling of it, it's, it's Langston who has been found guilty and he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So he had worked as a security guard, but he wasn't there that day. It was mother's day. He was with his wife. He was with his daughter. Who's a prominent character in this book. Um, so he, you would think he has an alibi and there's nearly no witnesses. He's really convicted on completely circumstantial evidence. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems like um, you know, we hear more and more of these cases, you know, the innocent project projects around the country. And, you know, this is an issue that's come to the forefront over the last 10 years. Um, have you been interested in that for a long time? And or did this de develop organically? Like, how did this become a novel uh, of wrongful conviction? For all of my adult life, I have asked myself the question, what can I do when it comes to wrongful convictions? It's just something that has um, grabbed my heart. And there was even a time when I thought, should I go back to law school and just become a part of the movement that way? And that wasn't um, ultimately what I needed to do. Um, but yes, when you think about it, our success rate is pretty good. We're told that two to 3% of convictions in America are wrong, which means 97% of the time we're getting it right. So that's pretty good until you start adding up those actual numbers. The the thousands upon thousands of convictions that happen every year and 3% then means as those accumulate over the years, we've got tens upon tens of thousands of people in prison who are doing time for crimes they did not commit. And it's, it's one thing if you have the hope of DNA, 
that someday science will be able to prove that you did not do it. But what do you do if your case, DNA is not an option and you have to come up with a different way to prove that you were not the person who committed the crime? Mm-hmm. Very often when we talk about the tragedy of wrongful convictions in, in the context of the death penalty, or rather, let me reframe that. Very often when we talk about abolishing the death penalty, the idea of there could be an innocent person who is put to death, that's a very central argument. And I've spoken to many abolitionists who say, you know, the real test of whether you are against the death penalty and are a true abolitionist is if you even take away that idea of guilt and innocence because just recognizing that the death penalty is wrong regardless of guilt or innocence and that the criminal justice system is completely skewed and so just even taking the guilt and innocence off the table but it doesn't seem that we're there yet as a society that we still are very much hinged on well what if they're innocent Right. And for me, that's a good starting point. And let's just talk about those numbers. I think of Florida right now, since the death penalty has been reinstated, um, they've executed, I think, almost 100 people, like right around 99. At, during that same amount of time, 30 people have been exonerated from Florida's death row. And if you have that kind of failure rate, that should be enough right there. Brian Stevenson, I think, was was right when he said, that the question is not do guilty people deserve to die the question is have we forfeited our right do we deserve to even be the ones to take their lives do you think in a state like colorado we still need to be having these conversations because obviously it's still happening in other states but there are still wrongful convictions and, and when i was reading this book it really reminded me of the case of clarence moses l who was in prison for many many years on the basis of a dream now, if you wrote that in a book, people would say that's completely <laughs> ludicrous. But this actually happened. This man was convicted because the the victim was the victim of a terrible crime, a terrible sexual assault, very violent assault, dreamed or told the police that, well, I dreamed that he was the person who did it. And that was the basis of his, his conviction. He served years in prison. 28 years. And I'm so happy that you brought him up because this is actually a series of books. And this first book is based upon the poetry of Langston Hughes, where he asked the question, what happened to a dream deferred? The next book that is coming up, I'm going to talk about what happens when dreams turn into nightmares. And the basis of my next novel is going to be Clarence Moses L's story, because there are two victims there. You have a woman who has experienced the worst thing that could have ever happened. She was beaten blind in one eye, could not identify who her attacker was, and then has a dream where she sees in the dream who this man is, but she was wrong. Trauma, everything's going on. How do we honor her and her story and then also recognize that that happened and the only evidence against Clarence Moses L. was this dream? And so I'm hoping to address that um, Colorado-based um wrongful conviction in in the next book. I I love how you frame that, that, you know, the victim is still a victim, that the current system, our current criminal justice system, it's not benefiting anyone. It's not benefiting the victims of crime and it's not benefiting those who were accused and wrongly accused and convicted. Which is why this subject matter, I think, is ripe for crime fiction, because we're able to It's one thing to have a nonfiction book address these things, but oftentimes fiction is the way that we begin to process the facts that we know, uh, because fiction has a way of bringing us in with characters that we start to care about and creates drama. But in the midst of that, we're able to, to sort through what we really should be thinking about things.
Well, we're speaking with the very appropriately named Robert Justice today <laughs> and uh, his novel, They Can't Take Your Name, on the Radio Book Club, collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. Arson. So, you know, at the heart of this novel, you have Langston, who is on death row, and his his uh, execution has been speeded up. And we can talk about that in a little bit, about because the drugs are going <laughs> to expire. And um, they're trying to speed up the executions. And his champion is his daughter, Liza. But uh, you also have another character, Eli, who really takes uh, center stage for a lot of the book. In some ways, this is, even though Langston and Liza are both very major characters, but in some ways, it's Eli's book. And so I was wondering if you could read us a little bit and talk about Eli a little bit for us. Eli is a brokenhearted man. He has lost his wife. He's trying to put his life back together. And the only way he can see to just distract himself is to, with the life insurance money, purchase the the Roz Jazz Club and just start renovating it. He's actually living out back in what he has discovered, this underground place, and he's made that into his home. And so, yeah, I would love to read a portion of chapter two, which is where we are introduced to Eli and we get to see his nightly routine. Sit back and grab your elixir of choice, said the late night radio host. Up next, we have the one, the only, Thelonious Monk. As round midnight began to play, something rare happened. Eli smiled. To him, the name Thelonious Monk sounded like the loneliest monk, which was an apt description of himself. It was the early 90s and hip-hop was all the rage, but in Eli's mind, jazz gave birth to hip-hop so he decided to stick with the original. The radio sat next to the door on a waist-high cabinet. Eli hooked his hat, turned toward the small, sparsely furnished room with no couch, recliner, or living room to speak of, just a kitchenette on the right, small dining table with two chairs on the left. Special night, baby, Eli said, as he walked to the table, lit the single, half-burned candle, I picked up something special from our favorite place. Eli unpacked the bag, grabbed a knife, fork from the drying rack. Sitting down at the table, he uncorked a bottle and poured. To us, he said. Raising his glass, he bowed his head in thanks. A single tear fell onto his plate. It landed on the very edge and for a moment teetered like a drop of rain on the Continental Divide trying to decide if it wants to become a part of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. Soon, it rolled down the slight slope toward the center of the plate, came to rest on the outskirts of the mashed potatoes. He sat back, stared across the table through tear-glade eyes. The empty chair was draped with a burnt orange scarf. It was one of the few things he kept after her death. She was, still is, his world. That's Robert Justice reading from his novel, They Can't Take Your Name. Eli experiences grief in such a tangible way. It's a physical, physical presence that he just is overwhelmed by in so many ways, which is testament to the very, very deep love he has. He also has a very physical connection to five points. And when I mean that is that when he you describe in the book, when he leaves, he goes beyond the environs of five points. He's almost... I don't want to describe it as a panic attack, but he feels physically that he's away from this safe space 
that he has, you know, that he feels very centred when he's in five points and particularly, you know, this bunker he's nearly created, you know, in, in the building that he's, he's restoring. So, you know, talk a little bit about that, that his physical connection to five points, he experiences emotion in a very physical way. I wanted to take something that people experience when they come to Colorado, they come to altitude and they struggle to breathe. And I wanted to take that connection of people saying, oh, we're up here and the air is, is, is rarefied and it's thin and I'm having a hard time breathing. And I wanted to use that experience that we have here, but then apply it culturally. I, I've lived my whole life here in Colorado. I grew up in Denver. And there were times when I lived um, in the foothills and wonderful people and great places, but I found myself as the other and no one around me looking like me. And it was almost as if culturally I could not breathe. And I found myself many times in the middle of the night getting up and driving to Five Points just to walk those streets. And so Eli has that part of me where when he gets to Five Points, he feels like he's safe culturally. And then he has to gear himself up for when he then leaves the confines of that place that used to be, think about his confines because of redlining and everything, five points and those surrounding communities is where blacks had to live. And then once things start to open up and anybody could live anywhere, he found out that yes, he could live anywhere, but now he wants to get back to the place that makes him feel safe. You know, you talk about, you know, feeling safe and uh, culturally being you know, a black person in Colorado, you know, often you can find yourself as surrounded by people who are not black. And that that permeates this novel in, in a way, a very powerful way, I think. And uh, Eli talks about, um, from a priest that he was raised by, uh, the children of Europe and mm. the children of Africa. And I thought that construction was very interesting and, and quite illuminating. And so tell us about Eli's thinking on it, because he does consciously think it's not just a subconscious thing, you know, where he leaves five points and he feels it. He, he's very conscious about the role that race has played in his life. And, and I think that's why he's uh, there's many reasons, but that's one of the reasons he's willing to get involved in Langston's plight. Yeah. And Eli has learned race from two places or two two people he learned from a black priest who then gets murdered early on in the book. We, we discovered that he was murdered in Eli's childhood, but he also learns race from a white nun. And so he has these two different sources of what is race as he's then trying to develop. I'm a black man in Colorado. I liked using children of Europe and children of Africa as just a different way to talk about this thing that is everywhere we go, that somehow it captures that we are the offspring of that which has gone before us, that which came before us, and those who made decisions before us. And if we are non-native people, native people are the only ones who are children of this land, you know, where we are. But then everyone else is a child of another continent, whether we came here by force or by choice. And so I wanted to use that language as just a way to reframe what we have reduced to skin color. And... And there's an, how, how you frame the relationship between the two. There's a scene that um, Eli speaking with that nun, uh, you know, because there is a couple of different times we flash back to Eli when he's younger, when, you know, the priest is alive. But in the modern times, in the you know, contemporary times, he's speaking with the nun and he, and he 
asks, do they see us? You know, she's a white woman, so she's a child of Europe or part of the children of Europe. And, and they have this conversation about visibility. Do they even see us, our humanity? And you're wearing this incredible T-shirt yes. to cover of the novel Invisible Man. And that was such a theme that jumped, jumped out at me as well. The idea of the invisibility and that of black people in our society. And this actually runs through in a very concrete way, whether people see one black person they can't differentiate that with another black person. That plays out in the trial, actually, of Langston. But it gets to a deeper sense when Eli's having that conversation with the nun. Do they see us? Do the children of Europe see the children of Africa? Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is my favorite novel of all time. One, the writing is beyond belief. He has a way of... There's this one scene where he describes a sweet potato in a way that causes your mouth to water. You just... The way he is so vivid. But he along with many others, create this archetype in black literature of invisibility that just shows up everywhere. And I just wanted to keep pulling on that archetype of invisibility and invisible people. But then as it gets tied to wrongful conviction, that when you look at the reasons why people are wrongfully convicted, oftentimes it's because of misidentification with an eyewitness and misidentification increases exponentially if it's a cross-racial identification. It's, it's as if we don't spend enough time with each other that we really can't see each other. And so then when you add the anxiety and the pressure of having to identify somebody in a crisis moment, we can't even make out a face. And so I was just trying to bring all of that, but then ultimately it comes down to, to wrongful convictions. Absolutely. And we're, we're seeing this play out even in AI, uh, artificial yes, intelligence yes. that has been shown to have an absolute racial bias. And so much technology and even like security related technology, you know, facial scans and various different things has been proven to have very deep systemic racial bias as well. Yeah, our AI is as good as we are. Yeah, or is that? We did an interview a couple years ago on, on a book about AI, and that's 100% true. It's what, it's what if you're inputting, if the racist culture is creating AI, then it's going to be racist AI. There's no way around yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I was struck by um, talking about this invisibility. You know, it's very painful for Eli in this conversation with a nun, you know, whether you see us at all. But, um, Towards the end, I don't want to give away anything, but towards the end, he uses that invisibility to his advantage. Okay, if I'm invisible, then it allows me to kind of do this audacious thing and get away with it. And I thought that was interesting how you turn the whole idea on its head and became an advantage rather than a disadvantage, at least in that one particular moment. Yeah, at some level, it's um, Spider-Man gets bit by a spider and now he has a superpower. And I was trying to bring that out that maybe this curse this um thing that we're all cursed with it's, it's it's just part of our society that that perhaps maybe there was some positive thing that could come out of it and and so that's what that that was about towards the end of the book there's a lot in here about efforts uh, at a local university around exoneration and and this is actually playing out around innocent projects I mean, how big is that effort is it really making inroads and what's happening here in colorado the movement is is growing and growing and growing has been for the last 30 years um, for me the writing of this specific novel i wanted to 
to shine a light on the good work that's happening with the Corey Wise Innocence Project here at CU Boulder and under the leadership of, of Anne-Marie Moyes and, and her whole team doing such good work saying, let's make sure that Colorado is a place that we are taking a good hard look at the cases. And they are doing something very unique. Most Innocence Projects are are focused on what can DNA do. And the Corey Wise Innocence Project is is wading into that territory of cases in Colorado where there's no DNA. And so for me, this is a, a personal passion project where half of my advance has already gone and as much of the royalties I can going forward from this book are going to be going to the Corey Wise Innocence Project. For me, I'm calling it read a book, write a wrong. For anybody who reads this book, you are participating in writing wrongs with the Corey Wise Innocence Project. It's just beautiful work that's happening. What's been your connection with people like Corey Wise, with other people who have been wrongly convicted? I mean, have you, through your work and your research for this, have you met people? Have you met their family members? I, you know, I want to talk about the impact of what this is like, not just on the person themselves, but on the, the family, the children, the community. And then, of course, the victims who are not getting justice because the actual perpetrator is not held to account. That's right. For every wrongful conviction, there's somebody walking around that is not being held accountable for that. For me, uh, I've personally tried to connect with as many Innocence Projects as possible and people who are involved. There's also a I want to be delicate with this. We have three men on death row. One of them I have become a personal friend of. And just to see um, what happens when something happens to you in your youth. And now, 20 and 30 years later, how that affects not only the victims who were involved in that, but then also the families on both sides. And then to see what's happening in that person's life people change and people grow. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking yeah. of the families, um, one of the other major characters is Liza, who we haven't talked to, Langston's yes. daughter. And her life has been completely changed. He, she was in high school when he got convicted. And her entire life, now that she's close to 30 years old, has been dedicated to saving her father. And which is, you know, obviously he's grateful for that, but it's also painful for him to see how his whole da- his daughter's life has been completely changed by this. There are three people in prison in this book. There's the obvious one, Langston Brown, who is wrongfully convicted, but then you have Eli, who is imprisoned to his grief. And then you have Liza, who has been in prison for over a decade of her life to trying to fight for her father's freedom. And what is she going to do when that fight finally is over. And so she is imprisoned to trying to help the world see that her her daddy did not do this and it has consumed her. There is so much more for us to talk about and we're going to get into it in the podcast only edition. So please do subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned for After Hours at the Radio Book Club as a podcast with Robert Justice to talk so much more about this. But in the meantime, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is a beautiful partnership between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore and this book club. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. They Can't Take Your Name is the name of the novel. We have been reading for the month of February, but as we always do at the end of the radio episode, we invite our listeners to read along with us for the following month. So who do we have lined up for March, Arson? 
Stephen Schwartz. He is up in Fort Collins. I've read a couple of his books in the past. So he's got a new book called The Tenderest of Strings. It's about a family that comes to Colorado from Chicago. The father buys a newspaper in a small town. And needless to say, struggles ensue. It's going to be a fun read. He's a wonderful writer. He's very compassionate towards his characters. Well, people can find out more about that book at our website, news.kgnu.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can get that extra bonus content with us in conversation with Robert Justice. The KGNU Boulder Bookstore Radio Book Club is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.